this series in Hosea, we began several weeks ago, and we've been in and out of Hosea, and so I know it might be a little bit of some gear shifting. I know Aaron did a wonderful job last week talking with you about Christmas, the meaning of Christmas, and how those things have really sunk in into his heart and his family's heart, especially um, in this Christmas season. But we're back in Hosea today to end the year and to begin a new year. This series of messages we've been, I've entitled Hosea, a case study in redeeming love. I believe it is the greatest story outside of the, the, the actual story of Christ's life in the whole Bible. This little book of prophecy, Hosea, 14 chapters. We're going to see next week, I'm going to preach a whole chapter. Hosea chapter 3, it's five verses. And yet, you'll hear me say, in this book of 14 chapters, this small chapter, 3, is the greatest chapter in Hosea. The greatest chapter in all the Bible. There's none like it anywhere. This is a a rather unusual message series because it would be simple and easy to get confused about what exactly we're talking about. You see, the first three chapters, as I said before, are a drama, a presentation of a real man with a real woman. Hosea, whose name means the Lord saves, and Gomer, the daughter of Deblim, and their story... And how that Hosea, although his wife was absolutely unfaithful, remained faithful. It is a drama like no other in the Scriptures. I mean, it's written for daytime television or primetime movie event. This is the kind of thing God has chosen to display His love for His people. It is full of sexual sin, unfaithfulness, and yet the faith which is stronger than all unfaithfulness. And today we come to chapter 2. And before we jump into this, I told you I won't give you a lot of stories mixed in with this one story, especially not life, real-life stories of unfaithfulness, because I'm not so sure that we should do that with this passage because we're not sure what the end will be. I mean, there may be unfaithfulness in a marriage, and it may seem to have been brought back together and then only to end at some time in the future. The reason it's safe to talk about Hosea as a representative of God is because he never leaves his wife. He dies faithful to his wife. I can't say that about myself. I can't say that about anyone who's here with a heart beating. I can't say that about men who have maybe gone through similar situations but not yet lived their entire lives. So it's not safe to bring other analogies into this analogy. It also might confuse you. It's easy enough to get confused, to lose track of the main purpose. As Aaron and I were talking about it after a couple messages ago, he said, but I think we've got to be careful to make sure that the people know the main point. Of the book of Hosea. And so I want to make that clear. Aaron's not here. That whole road's vacant. You can see. Robert E. Lee's seat is vacant today. <laughs> but. Y'all tell him I said this. The purpose of Hosea is not to talk about covenant marriage. Although that is the example that God chooses to use. To describe his relationship with his people. The purpose of Hosea is to communicate the fact that God is a covenant God who keeps His love with His people regardless of their unfaithfulness. That God will never forsake His people. That's the purpose, okay? Now, if I give you a test in a few weeks, you don't need to miss that question. Because if you miss that one, you miss all of the others. There are a lot of interesting things we're going to talk about even today and things that will pique your interest, I hope. But if you miss that point, you've missed it all, no matter how interesting it has been for you as we look at Hosea. And no matter how practical the book is, because what I tell Aaron is, I agree with you that we have to keep the purpose in front of them, but we also must apply that purpose to their life, practically. Because you are looking at me and saying, what does this mean to me? And so I can tell you that it means something for your salvation, primarily. But secondarily, not in importance necessarily, but 
secondarily to Hosea's point, it means something for your marriage. And I'm going to issue the challenge again. You need to leave this place today. Go home. And as you drive and as you talk with your wife, you need to discuss how long you will be faithful in your marriage. And what circumstances might arise that would cause you to turn your back on your loved one? You need to talk about those things right now. Because the day's coming when you'll face temptation. And that day's coming when the times will get hard. That's not an if, that's a guarantee. And your marriage will be on the rocks. And the only thing that will keep you in your marriage might be the fact that you committed in your heart and to the Lord and to your husband or your wife, I will not leave this marriage. No matter what happens, I'm not leaving. You can't dynamite me out of this thing. I'm here till I die. And some of you may lay in your bed at night and quietly cry that you could die so you could leave this life of suffering and pain. I do not pretend to paint a picture where all marriages are beautiful if all you understand is the covenant love of God. That is not my intention. Many times the fact that you know God's love for you and the fact that your marriage is a representation of God's love for His people will cause you more pain, not less. It'll make your life harder, not easier. I want to read a poem. I did not write it. Amy can tell you I'm no poet. I wrote something in the newspaper. She never lets me live it down. Every Valentine, she pulls out our high school scrapbook and wants to get that little doodad I wrote that I thought was so profound. And now, though it may be sweet, it's unpublishable. This is not like that. And I realize that in our world, it's difficult to listen when someone reads. I don't disregard that, but I want you to overcome it. I want you to listen. I want you to put yourself in this poem. I want you to feel it. That's what poems are for, to feel the truth. This one is entitled simply Hosea and Gomer by John Piper. The old man and his wife sat by the winter fire, looked out high above the plains of Ephraim, and saw around the last regime of Israel the shadows snake their way from east to west and take possession of Samaria. How long until Assyria, they thought, would break Hoshea's rod and violate the wife of God? But strange as it may seem, the doom they saw across the land left room for hope. And when they looked into each other's eyes as they would do at night, they knew, as none could know but they, that God would bend His bow against the charms of foreign men and take His faithless wife again. They knew it could and would be done as surely as the rising sun drives darkness back unerringly and drowns it in the western sea. They knew because they had rehearsed the tragedy and played it first themselves with passion and deceit. It's true that life is far more sweet, Hosea thought, when it is lost, then bought again at dreadful cost. And love grows strong when it must wait. And deep it is, almost hate. Such things as these, he often said to Gomer, as they watched the red and crimson echoes of the sky descend Mount Tabor's cliffs and die in darkness far below. And she would say to him, Your love for me was like a mountain waterfall. And now the jagged stone. Of all the knives and hammers once applied, None made me smooth or clean. They tried, but harlotry was in my blood. 
until your love became a flood cascading over my crude life and kept me as your only wife. They knew as none, but they could know what it would mean that long ago the Lord allowed his love to swell and married faithless Israel. The passing of the years now found the children grown and gathered round this night Jezreel and Laomai, Hosea's sons, and at his knee, Lo Ruhamah. The room was sweet with memories and each replete with pleasure and with ample pain. Among the memories, one main experience above the rest embraced them all. It was the best. Indeed, it was the mountain spring of every happy stream from which the family ever drank and rich with love. It was Hosea's love. The children stood in wonder of the way he loved. And Gomer too. But this had not always been true. Hosea used to say, it's hard to be a seer and prophet bard. The price is high when he must sing a song of ruin over everything in lyrics written with his life and lose his children and his wife. And so it was, Hosea heard the Lord. It was the strangest word a holy prophet ever got. And every pointed precept shot like arrows at Hosea's life. Go take a harlot for your wife. Thus says the Lord, and fill with me the grief and pain of harlotry. Her father's name is Deblime. He makes fertility with cream and raisin cakes. He will not see her go without a price, for she has brought him profits from her trade. Now go and let her price be paid and bring her back and let her bear your son. Call him Jezreel, for there is coming soon a day when I will strike and break the bloody thigh of Jehu's brutal house and seal with blood the valley of Jezreel. And after that, though she's defiled, go in and get another child. And make your tender face like rock. Call her Lo-Ru-Ahama. And lock her heart against all sympathy. Not pitied is her name. No plea from faithless Israel will wake my sympathy till I forsake my daughter in the wilderness. Now multiply once more distress. Hosea, go beget a son for there is yet one child to shun, and call him Lo-Ami in shame, for not my people is his name. Hosea used to walk along the Jordan Rim and sing the song. His father, Bairi, used to sing. Sometimes the tune and truth would bring him peace, and he would pause and look at all the turns the Jordan took. To make its way down to the sea. And he would chant from memory. Think not my son. That God's great river of love flows simply to the sea. He aims not straight. But to deliver the wayward soul like you and me. Follow the current where it goes. With love and grace. It ever flows. The years went by, the children grew, the river bent, and Gomer knew a dozen men. And finally she left and traveled to the sea and sold herself to foreign priests who made the children serve at feasts until they had no shame. And then the God of grace came down again and said, Hosea, go embrace your wife beside the sea and place your hand with blessing on the head of lo and raise the dead Lo-Ruhamah to life in me. And tell Jezreel that I will be for him a seed of hope to sow in righteousness. Hosea, go! The gracious river bends once more. And so the prophet loved these four again. And sought them by the sea. And bought them with the equity of everything he owned. 
that was the memory tonight. Because Hosea loved beyond the way of mortal man. What man would say? Love grows more strong when it must wait and deeper when it's almost hate. Jezreel spoke softly for the rest. Father, once more let us be blessed. What were the words from long ago that gave you strength to love us so? Would you please bless us with your rhyme and sing it for us one more time? Think not, my son, that God's great river of love flows simply to the sea. He aims not straight, but to deliver the wayward soul like you and me. Follow the current where it goes. With love and grace, it ever flows. And children, Gomer said with tears, Mark this, the miracle of years. She looked Hosea in the face and said, Hosea, man of grace. Dark harlotry was in my blood. Until your love became a flood, cascading over my crude life and kept me as your only wife. I loved the very ground that you trod. And most of all, I love your God. And that is the passage we come to. We come to a passage in the middle of a drama. 23 verses long. To tell us of the pain and the misery which Hosea must endure. Chapter 1 was painful enough. Chapter 2 only grows in pain. There are three main ideas in this passage. Three main ideas. One overarching purpose. Now I'm going to give you the outline that I'm going to fill it in, okay? The first main point is that God cuts us off from our ability to fulfill sinful desire. God cuts us off from our ability to fulfill our evil desires. It's in verse 6 through 8. And second main point is, God will cause us to suffer from a lack of basic necessities so that we will return to Him. Verses 9 through 13. And finally, we see that God's discipline leads to repentance and restoration. Verses 14 through 23. All three of these main points bring us to the understanding that the main point is that God's discipline is against all that He loves. If you live this mortal life spared from the disciplining hand of God, you are not His child. Now, that, that's not a popular message. But that's a true one. And when we conclude, I'll show you, both the Old Testament here in Hosea 2 and the New Testament say the same exact thing. You cannot escape this life which we live in as believers without the disciplining hand of God falling against you. You can't do it. Because the Bible says He disciplines all the sons that He loves. And His discipline is meant for repentance and restoration. So let's look at these three main points. Let's fill in. Let's put meat on the bones. God cuts us off from our ability to fulfill sinful desires. Verses 6 through 8. If you look at verses 6 through 8, they're preceded by the documentation of Hosea's continued whoredom. This woman knew no limits to where she would go and what she would do. She did not at first escape to that foreign land which John Piper talks about, though she did go there eventually to take out her trade and make a higher wage. She at first started in his neighborhood and around his business associates and in the marketplace. 
wearing her trade, flaunting it in her husband's face. Look at verses 2 through 5. Her harlotry, her whoredom is no secret to Hosea. Look what he says. Plead with your mother. Plead. The words of a broken heart. The words of a man who has been spurned. Who is, has put his love out on display for this woman. And has had his face slapped. Not once. Not twice. But over and over and over again. Plead with your mother. Plead for she is not my wife. And I'm not her husband. That's the way she lived. As if he were not her husband. She went from coming home late at night to not coming home. Things have gotten progressively worse. The more Hosea has loved, the more she has ruined from his love. So now he's gone to his children who are old enough to know her shame, and he's saying, beg your mama to come home. Now, men, there's not much more you could imagine than this kind of embarrassment. I know, because I can't imagine it either. Things have gotten progressively worse. That she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts lest I strip her naked and make her as in the days she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Hosea took a poor woman and made her wealthy and now he's telling the children, you tell your mama to come home and be my wife for I will not bankroll her misbehavior forever. I will strip her naked again. I will take her fine things. I will not fund her sin. Tell her to come home. He didn't do that the first day. But at some point, Hosea said, there's discipline that's needed. And I will not fund her misbehavior. But he had intention. And as we continue to read down through the passage... We see that it says the children also, I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. She announced this to Hosea. I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Can you imagine standing in your kitchen? With your three children gathered around hearing their mother say. The way I make my living is selling my body. And I'm going to keep doing it because they provide for me. Hosea, you not only are my husband. You're not my husband. You're not my provider. My sin provides for me. Brazen. Rebellious. Bent. On destruction and evil. You cannot stop me. I'm a grown woman. I will do what I want to do. That's the heart of rebellion that comes from Gomer. In the face of love. In the face of mercy. In the face of provision. She's living in his roof. Picking from his vineyard. Taking his olives to make oil. And saying that others are providing for her. There's no greater insult. Not only has she insulted him by making him less of a man, by sleeping around with all the men of town, but now she dares to question his ability to provide for her. Our rebellious adultery will not be rewarded by God. Now, I've just changed it. It's not hers anymore. It's ours. Because, see, as I told you, It will be a great temptation during this message and especially the next for us to say, look how bad Gomer is. Listen, I am Gomer. You in this pews, in the balcony, you are Gomer. 
And almost daily we stand before a loving and merciful husband in Christ and say, I know what you've provided. But I'm a grown person and I will do what I want to do. I know you've provided. I don't want your provision. I'll make my own way. And God will simply not reward that rebellion from His children. Neither did Hosea reward Gomer. Look at verse 6. Because see, for all the just ones in here, you are saying this, this story is unbelievable. You're kind of like the Pharisees in the prodigal son. Where is justice? Where is this man Hosea going to be exalted for his righteousness? When will Gomer be put in her place? And that's about to happen, but not with that attitude at all. For see, Hosea's gaze was through Gomer in her current state and to what he wanted her to be. Just as God's gaze at you today is through the lens of His Son and what you will one day be. And whatever He does today to discipline you is just that. It's discipline. It's not punishment. It's not condemnation. And it's not judgment for His children. It's the flow of water that shapes the stone. It's the flood of love that runs to the sea. And as it goes, it shapes each stone it touches. That's what He's doing in your life. Not punishing, not condemning, not damning, disciplining. And our rebellious hearts have to be disciplined because we are verses 2 through 5. And so verse 6 happens. Hosea says, Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. This is the beginning of discipline. At first, he says, I will hedge her in from the evil that's outside. Now, this same word for hedge in this verse is also the verse of the word in the verses of Job chapter 1 when Satan comes before God and says, Does Job love you for no cause at all? Haven't you hedged him about so that no one can touch him? Doesn't he have everything he won't see? God hedged him in. This is a similar word to that word in Psalm chapter 46 which we find about God being a fortress, a protection, a bulwark that never fails. This hedge of protection. This one is made of thorns and thistles to keep. This is a common practice. Around the most beloved of gardens, a farmer would plant a hedge bush that was full of thorns so that it was a barrier to keep evil out. That's what Hosea is doing. He says, I'm going to hedge her up. I'm going to keep the evil out. And that's how God starts in our life. Often He hedges us in. Our rebellious hearts go off into rebellion and God sends a hedge of protection. It might be your job. It might be a friend. It might be your church. It might be your children. It might be any number of things that come to... Raise your awareness to the evil that's all around you. It might be circumstantial events that occur in your life that wake you up from your drowsy, induced, sin-filled state so that you say, this is evil. That's a hedge being built around you so that you'll flee from evil and stay behind the hedge. That was the first thing that happened in verse 6. And so we see that our rebellious adultery will not, it cannot be rewarded by God. We are adulterous people. Everyone in here is blessed beyond measure. Everyone in here. There is none of us that can complain for what God has done in our lives. And yet, in our hearts, if we're honest this morning, we're serving all kinds of gods. All kinds of gods. For some of you, it is your pride of self-worth. In other words, you have your family the way your family is. You work your job the way you work at your job. You come to church so that everyone else sees you as you want to be presented. You worship yourself. Now, that's not kind, maybe, but that's the truth. 
I don't have time for pleasantries to run around in a circle to make you feel better about your sin. Some of you sitting in this place right now are serving the God of self-worth. I want to feel good about myself. Some of you are serving success. You're driven at everything you do in your job, in your family. It's all about accomplishing the task. And when you do it, you feel awesome. You feel good. You feel worthy. You come into church and before God in prayer and you say, look what my hands have done. Just like Cain did. Some of you worship your family. It's all about your family. Every other family can go to hell. But my family must be saved. It's all about my family. You build your whole life around spending time with your family. Physical children which you birthed and you should love them. God gave them to you. You should love them. But you should never neglect the call of God outside the home and into the community. Whereby your neighbor who is lost might be your child in the faith. If you would simply go to them. But see, you're too busy worshiping at the altar of family. And not thinking of God. And sometimes God sends a hedge of protection for those things. A wake-up call. Some of you serve material goods. We could go down the list. Material goods. Sexual pleasure. Some of you are just like Gomer. In your mind. You just hadn't done it yet. You're going to, but you had not done it yet. And that is, you fantasize about every man or woman that walks by sexually. And, and it is sin. At the same level. It's the same God Gomer was serving. Sexual pleasure. I will have what I will have. I'm an adult. I'll do what I want to do. Who does it hurt anyway? And God will lovingly build a hedge. For his children. Thorns. That when you run up against them. It will prick you. And when those, those on the outside. Those evils outside start coming in. They'll get pricked. That's the first line of defense. It's in verse 6 for us. Our adultery will persist. At times. Even when we say we want to repent. Verse 7. Look. He builds this thing. She can't find her way to her sin. And she says. I can't overtake them. And she'll say she'll, she'll seek them and she can't find them. Then she will say, I'll go home to my first husband. For it was better for me then than it is now. It sounds like repentance, doesn't it? The hedge worked. She's going to go home. For a little while. And the first time there was a disagreement or an argument or a disappointment. Off to the old life again. Our adultery often will persist even when we say we want to change. How many times have you heard or have you said, I'm never going to do this again. God, I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've made deals with God, okay, and broke them. God, if you'll just get me out of this tight, I'm never getting back in this one again. That is not repentance. That is bartering. That is self-soothing. That is covering over the muck and the murk that's deep inside the heart that is evil. That's not real repentance. I'll go home. Look at her words. I'll go home to my first husband because, not because I love him, not because he's my darling, not because he's given me all that I have. I'll go home because he at least is better than what I'm experiencing right now. Which is the clue. It tells you, you will go back to your harlotry as soon as things aren't as good at home as you thought they were. Right back into it. And some of you have started and stopped the Christian walk like this over and over again. Run to the world. And then run back in 
when it gets a little scary, when things get kind of deep, when the debt starts mounting up, when the wolves are at the door, when the wife starts finding out about some of your lies and some of the things you've told and done, and the boss is ready to fire you. You say, oh, God, just get me out of this one. And you run home, and you're good and obedient, and I go to church, and I'm doing my prayers, and I'm reading my Bible, and everything's going great. And the first trial that comes, you say, this is no better than it was out there. I think I'll go back. That's how you've lived the Christian life, back and forth and back and forth. And God builds this hedge and says, don't do it. Don't go back. Stay with me. Even through the hard times, stay with me. I will always provide. I will always be your God. Don't leave me now, he says to your friends and to his children. Beg them to stay. And you won't stay. You won't stay. Back out. Back out. Because sometimes our hearts persist in evil and refuse to repent. And our adultery does not change God's faithfulness. The fact that we are unfaithful does not change who God is. Look at verse 8. That is hope for us sinners. That's hope for me. That's hope for you. If you are in the worst of sins right now, you're living in adultery. You're living in addiction to pornography. You're living in, in business practices which are unfair and unwise and are cheating and ethically wrong. You're living in just absolute rebellion against God. I want to say to you, your rebellion doesn't change who God is. Look at verse 8. This is the glorious hope. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. God never became unfaithful in the story. Neither did Hosea. This is what's being described by Hosea. Hosea said, my wife came to me and then she left me. And she was a full-time prostitute. On the streets. And I went into the marketplace when she didn't know I was there. And I bought her supplies. And I took them to those despicable men who could not afford her anymore. And so she was simply living by the, by the, by the little crumbs she could pick up off the ground. And I love her so much that I went and bought all the grain, all the oil, everything she would need. And I found that man that she was with when she was not with him when he was off to his job, when he was off with his friends, when he was finding other prostitutes. And I said to him, this is all Gomer will need for the week. Please give it to her. What? What? Yes, what I'm saying to you is while you are running from the one who loves you, God Himself in His Son, Jesus Christ, He is making provision for you even now as His child. He's building a hedge. He's disciplining, but He is not removing fully His grace on your life. And unfortunately, the majority of the churches in our world are suffering from this complex right here. This is their fault. The pews are full. The bank account looks good. We must be doing something right. No. That has nothing to do with it. The fact is, God may be being more than gracious in this season, but He is not approving of their sin. Neither is He approving of my sin. Just because I have savings, and just because I live in a warm house and just because my children get to go to the doctor when they have need and just because we have food of plenty and just because we have christmas where people give gifts away give stuff away the rest of the world can't understand christmas y'all give stuff away to other people that don't need anything you're giving them their 50th shirt just because Christmas is like that for you does not mean God approves of your sin. It does not mean that. As a matter of fact, it simply means He is unchanged though you are a sinner. And His love will never fail. This is the God I serve. That when I drag in my despicable, fleshly, evil self, smelling, of the gutter I've lived in in sin and say, oh God, I'm a sinner. He says, I know. 
I know. I've been there all the time. I've provided for you every day. I forgive your sin. Now, that's not a contradiction. Understand what I'm saying. Gomer's not at this point of repentance yet. She's still in sin. But the fact that she's a sinner does not stop God from extending grace to her. As a matter of fact, the Bible says in Romans that he justifies the ungodly. So the fact that she's not justified yet does not mean he can't love her and give to her. As a matter of fact, he's doing that for some of you right now. As a lost person, he's still extending common grace to you and offering opportunity like this one to hear the word of God and repent. And to those who are saved, he is saying, come home again, even though you have run for the hundredth time into your despicable sin. We serve a good God who cuts us off from our evil desires. I once heard, well, at least I'm not as bad as Hitler. Well, you know, Hitler wasn't as bad as he could have been. I'm convinced of that. As evil and despicable as he might have been, he was not as bad as he wanted to be. And you're not as bad as you want to be because God has kept you from those desires. Secondly, God will cause us to suffer from a lack of basic necessities so that we will return to him. So I've just said he keeps providing, right? And you're thinking, this is, this is the gospel that I hate. This is just live however you want. God's Santa Claus. He just keeps giving. No. No, that's a lie. That's not the gospel. But this is the gospel. Look in verse 9. Therefore, there are three therefores in this passage. Verse 6, verse 9, verse 14. That's my outline. I'm not a genius. You can pull this outline out of this passage. When you see the word therefore in the Bible, it probably is a transition from one thing to another. So if you're reading and you read therefore... Put Roman numeral 1. Or maybe you need to go back and put 1 at the beginning. And then Roman numeral 2. And then Roman numeral 3. You've got an outline you can teach the second book, the second chapter of Hosea. Bible study is not rocket science. It takes a while sometimes. And it's hard work. But you can do it. You can do it. Sometimes he takes our basic necessities. We should never presume on God's goodness during a season of adultery. You've been there. I've been there, haven't we? We're out there living how we live, sinning how we sin. Life's good. Everything's being provided. And we almost mock God in saying, See, I knew this wasn't all that bad. God isn't serious about sin anymore. Look how good my life is. Matter of fact, this probably isn't even sin anymore, what I'm doing. It used to be, but it's not anymore. I hear that kind of stuff all the time. Had a conversation with a man just two weeks ago where he said there was a God in the Old Testament and a God in the New Testament. The God in the Old Testament had a lot of rules and a lot of things he hated. He killed a lot of people. Then he died, and now there's no rules. Just do whatever you want to do. Unfortunately for that man, he's going to live that way for a season. Okay, But if he's really God's child, if he is God's child, there'll come a day where those basic necessities may be gone. He may fall, fall on the hardest of times. Because sometimes God even goes to that level. Look what he says. Therefore, I will take back my grain. This is what Hosea says. He's speaking as if God, as if God is saying this. I'll take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax. Everything she wears, everything she eats, everything she drinks. Now I will uncover her lewdness. You see, sometimes, and I I never understood this. My granddad used to say often in his sermons, sometimes, and he would just say it, like out of the context of alcoholism, I didn't know what he was talking about. A drunker must lay in his vomit to realize that he's a sinner. He got that out of the Proverbs. A dog returns to his vomit. And this is the same thing. Look what he's doing. I'm going to take back everything I've given. And I'm going to uncover her lewd acts. She's been hiding and kind of sneaking around and there's been innuendo. I'm about to expose it. It's going to be there for everybody to see. 
because she's going to hit so far down that no longer is she going to get paid for what she's doing. She's going to be begging for bread, giving herself away and then begging for bread. That's where she's headed. I'm not going to continue to bankroll her sin. There's going to come a point where love says that's enough of providing your basic necessities even. But it's not done in judgment. Notice that. It's not done in judgment. It's not done in hatred. It's done in discipline. And I will put an end to all her myrrh, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all of her Baal worship. I'll put an end to all that. And I'm going to destroy her vines and her fig trees because, see, they believed Baal was the god of fertility and that's where they were getting the wine. That's where they were getting the grain was from Baal. So if she wants to worship Baal, if she wants to live in adultery, if Israel so desires to follow after Baal, well, let her have what Baal can give her. Let her have what Baal can give her. Hosea is saying the same thing. If she thinks these scoundrel of these men are providing for her, let them provide. Sometimes God does that with you and with me. You run so far down the career track that you forsake your family, you forsake your your God, you forsake it all. I just want to be successful. And then God says, okay, I love you too much to let you die this way. And he pulls back his hand of provision and says, let the boss provide for you whatever he can provide. And you find suddenly it wasn't the boss that was providing. It was God. You run down the track of my husband is my all and no one else loves me like my husband and I couldn't survive without my husband and I'll never be able to. Those are all nice things. But you become so dependent in your heart and in your life as to how you will live. Oh, I've got to have this family. I've got to have it together. You worship that family long enough and God will pull back his hand and say, see if that husband or wife can fulfill your needs. And you soon find it wasn't the husband and wife providing for you. It was God providing for you through them. God sometimes builds a hedge and then God sometimes pulls back his hand. And that's what Hosea did and that's what Israel experienced and that's what we experience often in our times of discipline. And so what happened? The sky stopped raining and the fig trees died and the vineyards went to wilderness. There's nothing to eat, nothing to drink and nothing to wear. We should expect God to expose our wickedness for the sake of repentance. Not for embarrassment's sake, but for the sake of repentance. And when He exposes it, we will remember the Lord during our day of trouble. His children remember Him in the day of trouble. Look at verse 13. And I will punish her for the feast. I will discipline her for the feast days of the Baals. When she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. In the day of trouble, she forgot him. But his children will remember. And we're about to see that third therefore. There's another transition in this chapter. A picture of what's to come for Gomer and for Israel and for us. God's discipline leads to repentance and restoration. Verses 14 through 23. God sovereignly brings us out of our sin. Look at, look, look at verse 14. I just jotted down. Follow with your finger these things that God says. God says in verse 14, I will allure her. Verse 15, I will give, I will make. Verse 17, I will remove. Verse 18, I will make, I will abolish. 19, I will betroth you. Verse 20, I will betroth you. Verse 21, I will answer. Verse 23, I will sow, I will have mercy, I will say. Do you notice some pattern here? Almost every verse in this section of God's leading us to repentance and restoration is God acting. 
So what's my message to you then? Gomer, wherever you are in your sin, you cannot make your way by yourself back to God. You can't do it. You can't do it. You're like a blind man bumping around in the world. You cannot find Him. But God never fails to be faithful to His children. And as dark as your surroundings may be, you will soon hear Him say, Gomer, Gomer, I love you. I've always loved you. Come home. And as dark and as bleak and as awful as your life looks, his children reach out their hands and say, Oh God, take me home. Wherever you lead me, I will follow. I'll no longer curse you. Now, I will worship the ground which you walk on. Oh, I won't ever go into my prayer closet begrudgingly. I will go as if the whole world matters nothing and you are all I have. I'll never worship success again. I'd rather be a pauper. And be with you. God sovereignly acts. Notice Hosea and God weren't asked by Gomer or by us to invade and do anything. Gomer didn't say, boy, I wish Hosea would show up and rescue me. He just showed up. And some of you don't even know to call out to God yet. And I'm telling you, he's going to show up. And you're going to hear him for the first time, maybe. Or for the first time in a long time. And you're going to say, I'm ready. I'll go home. Wherever you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That will be your heart's reply. God never fails to remind us of his covenant love. Look at 19 and 20. Just so you don't think this is just some whim that God has. Look what he says. Hosea says this to Gomer, and God says this to us. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Hosea went to a prostitute and talked about faithfulness. Gomer... I'm going to marry you, and you will be faithful. Burn me once, shame on you. You heard the old saying, burn me twice, shame on me. Not in God's book. Lord, how many times should I forgive when my brother offends? Seven times? The law said three. I'm saying seven. Jesus says, Oh, Peter, 70 times seven, son. Infinitely forgive. Why? Because your father has forgiven you this way. Aren't you glad God didn't say, Burn me once, shame on you. Burn me twice, shame on me. Instead, he said, burn me, and I will pursue you. Burn me, and I will come to you. Burn me, and I will kill myself for your sake. Burn me, and sin against me, and commit adultery, all manner of lewdness, and I will come and put my robe over you so the world can't mock you any longer and wrap you in white and call you faithful who has only been unfaithful. I'll give you my faithfulness. I'll give you my righteousness. That's what Hosea did for his wife. And I believe it was public. I believe he went to the wrong side of the tracks 
probably into another man's home. And he said with her laying in another man's bed, I brought my coat. Put this on. I don't want him to see you like that. I'm not asking you to have mercy. I'll give you my mercy. I'm not asking you to be good. I'll give you my goodness. I'm not asking you to love me. I'll love you. Come home. Who can't serve a God like this? Who can't serve a God like this? Who would dare to walk away from a Lord of mercy and love? And husbands, who would curse his wife whom God has redeemed? I don't care what your wife does to you men. I'm just going to tell you. I don't care what she does. My call to you from the Scripture is stand by her again and again and again. And if you've already been in a marriage that's failed, there's forgiveness. Because He doesn't say shame on you once. Shame on me twice. He says, if you've been married four times, five times, and the one you're with is not your husband, I'll still love you. But what I'm telling to you now, if you've been divorced and are remarried, is the one you're with right now is it. There's no others for you. Why? Because you want to paint the gospel to the lost world. You say, I'm not happy in my marriage. It doesn't matter. You may hate your marriage. You may be absolutely miserable in your marriage. I want you to think, isn't God worth more than your happiness? So even when it gets hard, hold on to God and have mercy on your spouse. We will not curb divorce rates in our church or in our country by idealism. It's all going to be rosy. No. It's never been rosy for God when it came to your salvation and it won't ever be rosy for us in our marriages. So whatever state you're in, if you're married, if you're divorced and remarried, if you're divorced and single, if you're single and don't think you're ever going to get married, you have the opportunity to display marriage as a display of the covenant love of God and to say, I'm not perfect, but I'm going to be Christ to my wife. I'm not perfect, but I will submit to my husband as the church does to Christ. I told you I'd show you a New Testament passage, and we're going to close with this, and there's going to be a song of meditation, and I'm going to be at the back because I want to look at you when you leave. I want to hug your neck. I want to tell you I love you. I want to talk with you if you want to talk. It's fine. I'll stay all day if that's what you want to do. Hebrews chapter 12. God says, better than me saying it, I'm going to ask Eric to read it, and then I'm going to ask you to play the song, and we're going to be dismissed, okay? Eric, would you just stand where you are and read this passage? Hebrews 12, just start in verse 3. And read till verse 17. Then play the song and you meditate. And when the song's over, the service is dismissed. Read.